0: Folks, do you feel like everything these days is go go go? It's nonstop from work to friends to family and a million pressing issues. Sometimes you just need to take a playoff and hit the reset button. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. Hey, it's that time of year in Minnesota, again, to get out on the lake, go to the cabin, sit back, watch some baseball. Coors Light is the perfect refreshment to chill during these summer months. There's only one beer out there that's made to chill. The mountains on the bottles and cans turn blue when your beer is cold, and that way you know it's time to chill. Hit that reset button with some mountain cold refreshment. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold-filtered, and cold-packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Coors Light is the one you should choose when you need to unwind, when you want to hit the reset button. Reach for the beer that is made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. All right, welcome into another episode of Purple Insider, Matthew Collar, along with our journeyman insider, Sage Rosenfels, former NFL quarterback. And, you know, the great thing about talking with the journeyman quarterback, as I have discovered through our years of podcasting and live radio together, Sage, is that you have played with a lot of other great NFL players. And so I noticed that NFL.com is having a lot of their ex-player analysts give their five favorite teammates or five best players that they ever played with. And I would like to do the same with you, Sage. Are you ready to go?
1: I'm ready for this. and, And in full disclosure... When you said to me, let's talk about your five favorite teammates, I didn't immediately go to who were sort of the five best players I played with. I, I went to guys, in my mind, like D'Amico Ryans was a linebacker with the Houston Texans. He was a second-round pick. He started as a rookie. I played him for three years. Not an unbelievable player, but just one of those blue-collar type of guys. Great teammate. Total leader of that defense so, so I was sort of thinking guys like that. By the way, he's now the linebackers coach of the San Francisco 49ers, sure enough, with Kyle Shanahan and that crew. So, um, so I was thinking guys like that, but was he a Hall of Fame type player? No. I mean, maybe he went to a Pro Bowl or so during his time in the National Football League, but I definitely did play with a lot of great players, a lot of Hall of Famers. I, I think there might be anywhere between five. Or six, seven hall, of, you know, fame type players that I played with, and, and I'm looking forward to talking about uh, a lot of these guys.
0: All right, so the first player on your list, you have submitted your list to me, so I will just give your list, and then we can break down each one, is Ricky Williams. And I will tell you that the Football Life documentary, and if you go to NFL Game Pass, you can watch all of them. There's a lot of them that are on YouTube. But that was the one that put those documentaries and maybe even NFL Network on the map because it was so good, and it was so interesting. I think people often think of Ricky Williams as just being, like, the guy who kind of ruined his career because of pot which now we look at as, oh, the NFL is not even going to worry about marijuana after this. It's amazing how much we've changed the connection between morality and marijuana over the last 20 years um, from Ricky Williams' time. But at his best, we often go into the running backs don't matter. Ricky Williams is usually connected to that. A crazy draft day trade from the New Orleans Saints, but had a Hall of Fame level career and was one of the most unstoppable players to ever play. So what was it like to play with Ricky Williams?
1: So I was traded to Miami from Washington in 2002 uh, for a cup of coffee and a loaf of bread. And I showed up, and Ricky Williams had also been traded that offseason. Of course, I was traded during training camp. He was traded sometime in the summer or the spring for two first-round draft picks. So there was a lot of pressure on Ricky to have this great year. Uh, we had a very old uh, offensive line. Great group of guys, the guys who were definitely on the left. La- almost every single one of them, except for maybe one, uh, was on the last year, maybe two years of their career. Uh, sort, of, sort of that veteran savvy group, you know. Um, and Dave Wanstead, you know, the old Bears coach and Jimmy Johnson mentality, it was all about running the football and defense. I mean, it was very, very conservative football. Uh, we would run draw way too much on third down and seven. You know, we just weren't a team that, through the ball. Jay Fiedler did not throw the ball usually more than 20, 25 times a game. Very conservative. Keep it uh, uh, tight to the vest. Win the turnover battle. Constantly talking about turnovers in our meetings. It was, uh, so all this pressure was on Ricky, uh, with this old offensive line. And then 2002, I think other than the Farb season, the Far season was at in two thousand now absolutely phenomenal, but Ricky ran for eighteen hundred and fifty yards uh, with that offense. We never saw two high safety defenses uh, unless it was like third and forever. It was always an extra safety in the box, and it was basically up to Ricky to run him over or to make a miss or t- both. And uh, what I saw him do that year, and I played with Adrian again in at nine, who maybe ran for thirteen hundred that year, twelve hundred that year uh it, 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 and and I know and I know Adrian had some 2000 yards se- 2000 yard season but what Ricky did that year was the best running back play that I saw in my time in the NFL and and also like mentally never made a mistake you know he didn't miss a protection he didn't miss a, a route he didn't miss really anything he was sort of a coach on the field and you just don't get that very often from a running back you don't get that sort of high intellectual player. And sometimes you do, but a lot of times you don't. And he was a guy that was very, very coachable, uh, always knew what he was doing. And that's just, as a quarterback, that's a great thing to have uh, on third down. He's a true three-down back. We didn't play backup running backs very much. Occasionally, Travis Miner, the old Florida State running back, he would pop in for a couple of carries a game. But it was really Ricky Williams, like 90-some percent of the time, it was all him and he was very dependable and uh and he he you know rarely got hurt and and as the game went on and he's like 33 carries he was still pounding and running people over and a lot of times won big ball, won ball games with his carries late in the fourth quarter
0: so the numbers on this season are preposterous 383 carries which we could just never dream of a running back having you mentioned the 1853 yards 16 touchdowns average 116 yards a game and tacked on 47 receptions out of the backfield at almost eight yards per reception. So even when he wasn't getting the handoffs, he was getting a lot of throws his way, 59 total targets and 430 touches. How a guy can run almost 400 times, and average 4.8 yards per carry, is wild. I mean, these are things that just would not happen at all in today's NFL. And I didn't realize until I watched the a Football Life documentary, that he was intellectual about the game. Now, there are usually not very many dummies walking around the NFL field. I mean, it's a very complicated game. You have to be smart to succeed. But I think with Ricky Williams, he's one of those guys that was aloof from the outside, and, and you thought, you know, you just never really know what's going on in this guy's head, and you don't realize that he would have that intellectual part of the game.
1: Yeah, he was. A, a, you know, smart guy. Um, always on it with his with the, the you know protections for a quarterback are really important. Defenses get complicated every week. Sometimes you rig protections. You, you call it this, but versus this front, we're gonna sort of break our rules. And every week that changes. And there was just no doubt that Ricky was gonna get it right. Uh, he was always you know, uh, on top of it. So great teammate, great runner. I think he was almost 250 pounds that year. Uh, I think he weighed about 240, 245. Uh, he had a run versus the Jets, uh, sort of a, a game winner. Maybe it was a tie, or maybe we're up by two points or something. And and he hits one for 75 yards. And you know, safeties are trying to—he's outrunning safeties and corners. He's 245 pounds. I mean, he's a big, thick, sturdy guy. But he also could make people miss. And uh, yeah, just just a phenomenal runner and uh, tough as nails. The next year, he only runs for about thirteen hundred, I believe. Um, similar amount of carries. And so, if you were at the time in South Florida as like a media member, uh, you know the Alex Marvezes of the world, um, and, you know, everyone understood sort of him quitting the, the, the fall the third year, uh, the Winesteeds last year uh, had some to do with the marijuana issue that he got busted for marijuana, maybe a third time. But another aspect was we just never upgraded that offensive line. We had drafted some guys, we were playing, you know, third round rookies or, or fourth rounders, fifth rounders starting very young group, very inexperienced. And he knew he was going to get another 370 carries plus 45 catches. Plus, you know, in pass protection, you're hitting people too. Linebackers blitzing you, you've got to light them up, right? So you're, it's not like you have, you know, uh, plays off physically. Um, uh, when there's a pass call, So uh, I think part of it also, other than the marijuana thing, was he just knew that he wasn't going to go through another season and get the absolute crap beat out of him. And so there definitely was a sort of Dave Wanstead mentality versus overuse of Ricky Williams, and that was a common uh, media conversation about those, uh, you know, those down there who really understood the situation well. Um, but you know it 's much easier to talk about you know why he quit because of the marijuana and things like that. He obviously was going through a lot i don 't know if you saw the run Ricky run thirty for thirty um it's you know it goes into the, his they, they find him in california when he 's quit and he 's smoking weed and the whole thing and and um but what I saw in two thousand two that eight hundred and fifty three yards was was the the best running back play in my 12 years in the NFL.
0: And my understanding is that he moved past that part of his life, like that he stopped using marijuana, found other ways to deal with it. And I think that now we would have done a lot more to help Ricky Williams with some of the things he was dealing with mentally because we acknowledge them as opposed to just making the guy into kind of like a criminal in the way that we look at him or not acknowledging or trying to help from an NFL organizational standpoint. We saw what happened with Everson Griffin where they supported him and then brought him back and he was still good and it was like yes this is how things should be done but they weren't back in 2002 so yeah
1: people people were really upset when he quit and it's easy to make as you said make easy to make him into a criminal uh now i think he is some sort of i don't know if you call him a healer but you know he's big into obviously he was into yoga Mm -hmm. and you know um So all these alternative medicines, and I believe he does have some sort of a weed company. And I think he might even be a part owner of a liquor store in Austin, Texas. So uh, he's, and he, and he he works for the university of Texas. I mean, he calls games for, I don't think he calls I think he does maybe halftime, pregame, postgame university of Texas type stuff for the longhorn network gets paid there as well. And yet also sells marijuana. I mean, what, what a deal. What, what a life. I mean, what an unusual life, not your typical football player.
0: Right. What a what a world we live in. And also, another note about Ricky Williams. The team that I used to call single-A baseball for, the Batavia Dogs. Ricky Williams, same guy, played for them one summer because he was trying baseball, and uh, I remember asking people about it, and they said, if he hit a ground ball to the left side, it was a hit. Like, he really couldn't hit that well. Um, at that level, I mean, single a is a pretty high level f- compared to playing in college or something like that. But if he hit the ball in play, he was pretty much getting to first base because he was by far the fastest person on the field. So he, um, he was,
1: dra- yeah, he was drafted and, and he said played minor league baseball and, and he would play baseball in the off season at Texas, which is sort of shocked me that like yeah. one of the best, you know, we, we didn't have those types of guys. that I We had a couple guys that ran track, you know, a couple receivers, that would try to run track uh, in the offseason. But the fact that Ricky was playing baseball, and, and when we would play catch, he, again, like what, running backs usually can't throw. Like Adrian Pearson c- couldn't throw at all, and m- almost no running backs can. They're just saying, like, Ricky could, would play catch with the quarterbacks. He loved uh, warming up before practice and had a nice throwing motion through throw a nice ball. He'd want to work on his drop a little bit. Um, a very, very unique player and, and definitely in my top five. For best players I played with. All
0: right, next on the list is somebody that you might expect would be on Sage Rosenfeld's list of players that you have played with, and that is Brett Favre. Now, we used to run a promo on our old Score North days of you talking about how, after the interception in 2009, that you said to Brett, Brett, you are the best football player I've ever been around uh, where, when you guys were sitting on the water coolers during the coin flip. And, you know, I I just can't imagine the, the view that you had for that season, starting when he comes in and the circus that it was in training camp and then seeing the season that developed the throw against San Francisco. That's legendary, the playoff game where, you know, you light up the Cowboys and then everything that happened in new Orleans. Um, But, you know, what, what can you say about Brett Favre that I guess anyone who didn't have that close of a view like, wouldn't know about him since he is so interesting but also so well chronicled in
1: his career? Yeah, so when people talk about the strong arm, which he did. I mean, he was 39 years old turning 40 that year, and his arm was insanely strong, but the accuracy. That's what was really crazy to me. His accuracy was off the charts and how many balls he'd fit in the tightest windows. Um, and then he would move defensive players to sort of get his guy open. You know, a linebacker or a safety would drop into the hole that where the receiver was running his dig route or running his curl route. And somehow Brett would find a way to move the linebacker for no reason, get him out of his position. To, of course, he's going to get yelled at by the coach uh, the next day on the other side, but he would find ways to get other people open. But I, I think what really surprised me was how insanely accurate he was. I knew he had this crazy strong arm, but his accuracy and his ability to take hits. I mean, to do that for 19, 20 years, um, to take those types of hits, uh, j- just I, not get hurt, just absolutely mind-boggling and, and the best quarterback that I played with and and probably is the best all-around football player. He did not have that pretty boy quarterback, you know, sort of mentality uh, as, as we all know. So played unbelievable that year. The stats you put up that year showing up, I think three weeks before the season started, I believe we had two preseason games left is when he showed up uh, for him to play, uh, you know, that well with, within the short preseason, and right into the season. And, and they, and they, you know, we, 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 he had a couple of easy games off the bat at Cleveland. He threw for like 110 yards. He we went we run easy. Adrian Pearson threw a guy into the bench that game uh, on a run. But uh, you know, week three we go to we we are home versus San Francisco, and we should have lost that game. And Brett finds a way to bring us back to Willis to victory. And it's just it's just again mind boggling to me. I was 30 31 at the time to think to myself. This guy is eight or nine years older than me, and he's still doing this at this high a level. Uh, I just simply couldn't believe it.
0: Is the throw against San Francisco the best throw you've ever
1: seen? Yes, best throw I've ever seen. Not only just, I mean, even if that was in the first quarter, it was was an absolutely amazing throw. But it was on the last play, basically the last play of the game. I don't know if there was 10 seconds left or 20 seconds left or something like that. Um, But it was right at the end. And there was just absolutely no room for air. And the fact that he even found him open again, this is a this is a he he Brett sort of rolled to the right. And and uh, Greg Lewis, who was the receiver who caught that ball versus San Francisco, was on the left side. And his in his route, he really doesn't cross the middle of the field. But since Brett held on to the ball, that sort of short post, uh, the 20 yard post turned into a 45 yard post, 50 yard post. And, and Brett threw that thing on a line in the back of the end zone. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the best throw that I ever saw. You
0: know, what's interesting about Favre is that he gets a little bit known for, I mean, not a little bit, for the gunslinger thing, but a little bit known for the interceptions that happened at the biggest moments. I mean, one thing is you have to be in those big moments to have that happen to you to throw those interceptions, for one, and you don't get to those big moments unless you're one of the best players ever. Um, But the other point is that in terms of his interception percentage, Favre really didn't throw more picks than other people, like per throw. Uh, I was just pulling this up, and his interception percentage for his career is basically the same as Kurt Warner's. But we never think of Kurt Warner as being reckless. We think of him as just throwing darts everywhere. And in a way, because of those big interceptions, and I think he had one year in his career where he threw a bunch of them, Um, But because he was always willing to give it a shot, especially in times that they were down or big situations, as opposed to checking down and taking some yards and then running the clock out on yourself when you're down, Uh, I mean, I think that that is respectable and also one of the reasons that he is great. And he gets known for the, the big interceptions, and of course, the one in 09 is devastating, but... I think it's part of what made him great is that he was willing to take those risks and you just very, very rarely see quarterbacks who were. And I imagine from your perspective, the role that you were in, that you know, taking a risk like that down the field that he would do eight to ten times a game and succeed on half of them or more uh, is, is a really hard thing to do when there's so much pressure at that
1: position. When you're a backup quarterback, your one of your biggest worries uh, is taking those risks and failing, because then you know now you're on the street because you threw too many receptions in a game. You don't have uh, much leeway to make those big mistakes, but that's just sort of the way Far played. And I think probably if you go back and watch all the old NFL film stuff on him back in the Mike Holmgren days, and you know John Gruner, Andy Reid's as quarterbacks coach. Uh, they know they're dealing with this super talented player who loves to push the ball down the field, loves to try to throw the ball in tight windows. And they see him do it so much. And then he would just throw these terrible interceptions or throw it right to somebody. And you're sitting there scratching and going, why you know, did he do that? Why didn't he just check the ball down? But that was his mentality. He was a guy who wanted to push the ball down the field. He wanted to make the defense pay for ever being out of position he didn't want to play conservatively, and it worked 95, 98% of the time, and then occasionally you'd have that, you know, just bad interception, and sometimes at the worst moments, but uh, for all the good that he did on the football team, uh, and for an offense, uh, I think whatever those interceptions were, were well worth it for, for all the teams that he played for.
0: Yeah, I kind of think about it like Steph Curry shooting 40-foot three-pointers, where some of them is, are going to be an airball or just look terrible yeah. every once in a while. But to have the guts to shoot it, and then also you're going to make a lot more than you're going to miss if you have Steph Curry's talent. But if you told him, no, sorry, because you're going to airball one every once in a while, you can't take that shot, well, then he never becomes Steph Curry, and Favre is kind of the same way.
1: It's yeah, you do see Steph Curry occasionally just air, completely airball a three pointer, and it's coming off a screen at 25 feet, and you're like, man, that's a terrible shot. But he also makes two out of three of those. It seems like sometimes there's there's sometimes there's a there's a small line between Steph Curry and John Starks. Like you know they're like. Sometimes you end up being a John Starks and you go three of 18, but you just keep shooting. You just keep slinging. And that's the way Favre played the game. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that
0: up. That was the most devastating moment of my childhood was the Knicks losing the NBA finals there. So I appreciate that. Uh, Charles Smith. Is it Charles
1: Smith? Uh, Yeah. yeah, Charles Smith. Yep. Charles Smith could get the ball in the hoop.
0: Uh, I know, yep. There were, those Knicks teams, man, lots of devastation there. It set me up well along with growing up in Buffalo to cover the Minnesota Vikings. Um, next player by on way, your – well,
1: By the way, the, the, in your right, since you're in Buffalo and you're right in between sort of Detroit and New York, I always felt the Knicks – I know they were going off subject here. The Knicks were really just sort of a, uh, a carbon copy of the bad. – they're trying to be the bad boys. They were, I think, in yes. some ways more talented. Like Ewing was a legit center who could score – I don't think the bad boys really had that. They're more of like bruisers on the inside. But when they played the Bulls, and, and you know, the, 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 the uh, Detroit uh, obviously was sort of, you know, beat the Bulls a few times, and finally Chicago got over the hump. Then the Knicks came, became sort of that bully type of person in the, in the Eastern Conference. They had Charles Oakley at the time. Uh, but Ewing was not a bully like that. He sure tried to be. But he could not be Rick Mahorn or Bill Lane Beer right. uh, by any means. So, th- yeah, those were great series. And they knew those, those, you know, those teams knew they had to be super physical to, to play against Michael Jordan. It was Anthony Mason and
0: Oakley. Those guys were the ones that were always beating people up. Uh, Doc Rivers, for a little bit of a time, was more of their defensive guy. But they had, like you said, they had more snipers Hubert Davis, Derek Humphrey, uh, or not Derek, Derek uh, Harper. Uh, you know, guys who could shoot
1: from outside than probably Detroit. But it was. The X-Man. The, the X-Man, Xavier McDaniel.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's he was right. another physical yeah. player. Yeah. He was. Yeah, yeah there was some, some good teams growing up there. But, of course, never get over the top. Uh, anyway, so the next player on your list, maybe someday will get over the top for the Hall of Fame, Zach Thomas, um, linebacker from the Miami Dolphins, who was your classic under- Rated, underappreciated, small guy. Anybody who listens to the show knows my appreciation for Sam Mills. I, I think he was very, very similar to Sam Mills just a few years later.
1: Very similar to Sam Mills. Uh, when I showed up in, in Miami in 2002, I got traded uh, after the third preseason game. So, you know, I'm, I'm walking in. I got about four days to to prepare for this game. Uh, actually, I, I got traded. We We fly the very next day to Houston. Uh, to play the Houston Texans in the opening of what was Reliant Stadium at the time, NRG Stadium. It was the first ever game there, preseason game. Um, and you know, Ricky's going back home, University of Texas. And and but I I, I will always remember in the in the hotel uh, as we get to as we get to Houston. I don't really know anybody, and Zach Thomas is one of those guys who immediately brings me. I know he's this great player. Don't know the guy but I'm not sure if it's because I'm a Big 12 guy or something, but he immediately introduces me to his family who had driven in from the game uh, from, from uh, you know, West Texas and just sort of like immediately treated me as like a family member. Uh, so you, you take away all the football stuff, just a phenomenal teammate. And I played with, his, played with Zach for four years. My first year, that, that year we are talking about with Ricky Williams, who runs for 1853. We had Ricky as a pro bowler on offense. Nobody else. Okay. Seven pro bowlers on defense. It's crazy. Pa- Patrick Sertain, Sam Madison, Brock Marion at safety, uh, Jason Taylor, Zach Thomas, Adawalia Goulier, uh, as is another defensive and opposite Jason Taylor, and You know, maybe someone else in that mix. Oh, 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 Tim Bowens, a defensive lineman that was just an absolute stud. One of the strong, probably like the Larry Allen of that team, just the strongest player on that football team. Um, And so, just loaded the, but it was unquestioned that Zach was the leader of that team. And even the next year, we we trade for Junior Seau, a 1st round draft pick, and Junior is already a first battle Hall of Famer at that point. He's about year 12, year 13, ends up playing 20 years. And even when him he coming in, who's, you know, just the leader of the San Diego Chargers defense, Zach was still the leader of that. And Junior even sort of knew that. And he was a leader too, absolutely. But it was sort of Zach's football team. And the guy could just make tons of tackles. Uh, we ran this 4-3 where the two interior defensive linemen um, – took up a lot of space, and so he would run. Wild. I mean, again, you know, Tim Bowens was so big. I mean, another guy named Chester Taylor. Not Chester Taylor, Chester, Larry, Chester, Larry Chester, another D lineman. He's like 350, just huge boys in there, not pass rushers, just big, huge bodies, and Zach would just run side to side. Uh, one of the quickest guys in a small space that you'll see from that linebacker position. Wasn't great in, 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 in having to cover – and a lot of times in that defense, he had to cover tight ends a lot. You know, Tony Gonzalez would, would sometimes eat him up in the passing game. Uh, but for the most part, and he was just – he would have 17 tackles a game, 18 tackles a game, 19, 12. It was just tackle, tackle, tackle all the time. And nobody ran on our defense. Very similar to those Vikings defenses uh, when I was up there. When Childress was there, they had three years where they were number one against the run. We were very similar to that. It seemed like we were always top five and stopping the run put quarterbacks in the third-long situation, and then that's when Jason Taylor did his thing and ended up being in the Hall of Fame. Junior Seau ended up being in the Hall of Fame, and I think Zach should be there as well.
0: Before we get back to the conversation, got to take a second to thank our sponsors, Soda Stick. Go to SodaStick.com to get your original Minnesota sports-inspired goods. If you have not seen yet the Can't Stop the Feeling hat, you got to check it out. It's part of an official partnership with Adam Thielen. If you need to get some new hats for summer, they're having their annual summer hat deal right now. Get 30% off select hats when buying two or more. Sodastick.com to shop. That is S-O-T-A-S-T-I-C-K.com. 30% off select hats. No code needed. Discount automatically applied at checkout. Deal ends June 20th. But think about the value of a middle linebacker who is elite at stopping the run in that era. That era is a golden age of running backs. You just have so many players across the league who were legit, straight-up superstar running backs. Those were the guys that were on the cover of Madden oftentimes were, were star running backs. There were only a couple of quarterbacks during that early 2000s era that were big difference makers, obviously Tom Brady and, and Peyton Manning and for a little bit Dante Culpepper. But there's a pretty big drop-off, I feel like, the fourth or fifth best quarterback, where now there's 25 quarterbacks who you consider stars or rising stars or guys that have potential to be franchise quarterbacks. That just really wasn't the case in the early 2000s. So there's a lot of teams that were built around running. If you had a Zach Thomas, that guy was way more valuable than maybe he would be now, although now he'd probably just adapt to be better in coverage.
1: What's also amazing is the AFC East at that time was legit. I think Mm -hmm. the best division in football. You know, The Buffalo Bills had Drew Bledsoe at quarterback. Uh, Tom Brady, young Tom Brady with the Patriots. Uh, Chad Pennington uh, was the quarterback of the Jets, young as well, uh, but a solid quarterback. Curtis uh, right? Martin in the, right, in the, in the backfield, Curt- right? C- Curtis Martin, Kevin Mawai was their center. He was always the guy that was super quick and would give uh, Zach some trouble. But when I showed up there in 2002, we went to Indianapolis in the old RCA Dome, and the divisions had just changed. But before I'd gotten there, Peyton Manning with Indianapolis Colts They also, I think, all played in that same division. So he was playing against Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Drew Bledsoe. I mean, really, really uh, quarterback-driven division. And Zach was sort of the quarterback of that defense. I know it's like sort of a cliche to say, but he really ran the whole thing. He organized everybody. When we would go to games, so, you know, you do these – you do the walkthrough on Saturday. uh, you You have some meetings. You shower up. You put on your suit. Um, and then you get on, you know, you get on the bus to go to the airport or whatever and you fly. When we were on that bus or at, or on the plane, Zach had these sheets of paper, uh, sort of a, 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 a booklet that he had drawn up pass plays out of the sort of the formations, um, that, that the previous team had ran, run a, a whole bunch of the previous games. And he would constantly flip through those like flashcards. And because he wanted his mind just to see all the things they do out of these various formations, so then he could, he did his rookie year, and he got so uh, worried that he would you know if he didn't do it he wouldn't play as well. So he did it for every game wow. for the rest of his career, uh, because he had success early on, and you know once you're doing something that's working, uh, it's, it's like wearing the same socks, you know, or, or whatever it might be um and and so zach would do that and and prepare 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 and play the mental side so physically he could just react and that's why he played so fast
0: and that's always a part a major part of the story that we just don't often hear from the outside i think we have much more access now and players uh, like our buddy Jeff Schwartz, who will be on Twitter breaking down protections and film and stuff like that, and you sh- really show the outside world how much goes into it to be a great player. And if you have the physical talent, the will, and then it goes along with, like you said, the dedication and intelligence to do it, um, you can become a Hall of Fame or borderline Hall of Fame player. But there are very few who have that intersection of all of those different things. And for someone like Zach Thomas to overcome the height element of it um, takes even more work, so very, very yeah. cool
1: with him. Yeah, five ten, maybe five eleven. Uh, he also played in an era, an era where you know um, he was, you could say, physical with receivers over the middle. I mean, he was knocking people out. It yeah. was this was yeah. pre all whatever it is now. I mean, you that you ran a slant, you better watch out because Zach Thomas will absolutely take your head off. And it was again that type of era. Uh, I was always a lot of people were worried that he was going to have concussion issues when he was done. I actually ran to Zach this this uh, last year, took my son down to Miami to the Orange Bowl and hung out with Zach for a day. And he did have some head issues after he got done uh, playing for six months to a year. Um, He was having some different things. And then he says he's been fine ever since. So I was very relieved that he'd been doing well. I I wasn't sure. Uh, But he'd been he's done really, really well. Um and you know obviously he's made a ton of money he's got a young family now uh he's he's like a you know talking to him he's you know he's a, he's the classic dad driving his daughter to to dance practice and to you know think of that now compared to what I saw him as in the early 2000s where he was just a headhunter out there uh it's amazing uh yeah you know, again great player maybe the one of the, one of the better defensive players I played with uh definitely the best middle linebacker I played with and and again. That defense was loaded, and he was the unquestioned leader of that defense.
0: Our next player on your list, every time I've ever watched a <laughs> Sage Rosenfels start for the Houston Texans, there's something that is in common. You throw the ball to Andre Johnson every play. That is your offensive strategy. In fact, that's probably why you won some games with Houston is Coobs and throwing to Andre Johnson every play. I don't think people realize that Andre Johnson is 11th all-time in receptions. And think about his quarterbacks. No offense, but you got you, Matt Schaub,
1: maybe David what? Carr.
0: David Carr. Was there a Yates mixed in? I mean, it. Was, he's not exactly playing with Brett Favre throughout his career and is one of the hands-down best receivers to ever play.
1: And he ended his career, uh, you know, with I think the, the Colts for a cup of coffee, maybe for a season, and maybe the Tennessee Titans for a little bit too. Interesting, all in the same division. Uh, at that point, his knees were sort of shot up. one of the things with Andre, six foot four, three, 235 pounds. And he, he, he legitimately ran in the, you know, the, the 441 or 439. So for a big guy, very fast. It's hard for big guys like that to put on the brakes. It's just not, you know, it's like an NBA guys. All these guys have bad knees at the end of their career. Well, that's, that happened to Andre. His knees just sort of gave out on him because he was so big. And when you would see him take off on his stance, when you'd watch it on film, you could feel the speed and the energy coming down the field. It was like a freight train. And he could run past you. He could run on the in-cuts. But then you know, he could also throw on the brakes. Uh, uh, and um, when I first got there, he was not a great snagger of the football. I don't know how to describe that. But he wasn't a great, uh, uh, I guess, ball catcher. You know, Before Kubiak and Kyle Shanahan, who was a receivers coach before he got there, uh, they would say you know, that one of Andre's problems is he catches a lot of balls in his chest. He's mm-hmm. just not super confident in his hands. And he really worked on that when I was there with those jugs machines. Uh, you know, he'd get 200 balls after every single practice, and he became a guy that could just snag the ball out of out of nowhere. And you would throw balls, you know, just into spaces over the middle, and Andre come rolling in there. You put the ball by 11 feet, and he'd go up there and just snag it. Had great hands, and also had pretty good run after the catch. He was a good blocker. Uh, he could put him all over the field. He wasn't just you know, again, we talked about Ricky Williams in the running back position. Sometimes those guys aren't super dependable of asking them to do too many things from a concept standpoint, from a responsibility standpoint. It's like some running backs just give them the ball. Some receivers, eh, you just want to line them up at X, or you just want to line them up at Z. Don't ask them to do too much because you don't want to overcomplicate. Not Andre. Andre could play X. You could move him to Z. You could put him in the slot. Occasionally, Cougs would line him up as like a second tight end just to sort of hide him. Uh, or even put him in the backfield in motion mount to see if we couldn't get a matchup on a linebacker or something. You could do all those things with Andre as well. Uh, and on top of it, and he's a very quiet guy, he was not a rah rah guy, uh, which you appreciate. As we all know, the receivers, the diva mentality of a receiver sometimes, Yodel Beckham's, or maybe with Stefan Diggs last year, last couple of years. You know, they'd, they'd occasionally say something. It'd be sort of annoying, and the coach or the, or the quarterback would have to deal with it. Andre had none of those types of things. He was the quiet guy who was sort of led by example, not by what he said, but by what he did. Um, and he, the way he worked, the way he, he had his own private workout on Fridays. and We would work on Monday through Thursday. He'd have the Andre Johnson University of Miami workout, which was like at a whole different level on Fridays. It was like fire aware If you show up for that thing, you're probably going to throw up. So his leadership thing on top of it, much less, uh, you know, when it was game time, he came from that University of Miami. We, we, will, we, we, we will do anything possible to win. It's all about winning. It's all about team. He didn't really care. Even though he had all those stats, he wasn't one of those guys that whined. He didn't have 12 catches that game. If we had three or four catches and we won, he was thrilled. Uh, so he was everything that you wanted as a wide receiver. When people ask me who was the best receiver I ever played with, it's unquestionable, Andre Johnson. Now, I didn't play with a lot of other Hall of Fame-type guys, but for me, unquestioned, I mean, Andre, the, the whole package, uh, so easy to play with. And, you, and, yeah, so if you're me and you're a quarterback, of course you're going to throw the ball to Andre Johnson. I mean, he, he's, he made a lot of quarterbacks look pretty good. He made Matt Schaub a, a, a ton of money. And uh, when Andre's on your team, you want to try to throw him the ball.
0: Before we get back to the conversation, I want to remind you that there is no shortage of action going on right now at our exclusive partners at betonline.ag. Sports are slowly making their way back, and BetOnline is leading the way with the best odds and lines for all UFC, NASCAR, boxing, and soccer matches. And if you need more, they have simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC simulations all day, every day, live on their website. Looking for something else other than sports? BetOnline has hundreds of casino games, poker tournaments, and prop bets to check out. Visit BetOnline.ag, use the promo code BLUEWIRE for a free welcome bonus, that's one word, blue wire. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Well, and uh, going along with the theme of, I wonder how we would look at him now, I think that he would get more attention than he did then. You're playing with Houston. You're not on TV very often. You're not on national TV almost ever with the Houston yep. Texans. I mean, maybe you get lucky enough to be a game that it covers a lot of the region at noon on Sunday and, and you're playing somebody. But aside from that, I mean, if you're not a Houston Texans fan from that era, you're probably not seeing it. You don't have red zone and even the fantasy, you would have looked at, you know, catches and seen that he was good, but never to see his excellence really play out like you would today. And then I think that PFF adds an extra layer to all of these things because we could look at, hey, what's Sage Rosenfels' quarterback rating when targeting Andre Johnson? Oh, my God, it's crazy good. And we just didn't have that access. So I think that held us back. The people who would be most knowledgeable about Andre Johnson's excellence are probably Madden players because he would always get, you know, a 95 rating on Madden. You could just, you know, trade for him because you're not playing with Texans. Sorry.
1: Yeah, you know, playing for the Texans was interesting. You know, that AFC South, they just, other than Houston, uh, which is a newer franchise, uh, and also in the same state as Dallas Cowboys, which is sort of like two strikes against you. Um, but, you know, the Jacksonville, small market. Tennis, national Tennessee, small market, right? Indianapolis, small market. So you just don't get a ton of national games. I actually, I believe, started the first ever Monday night game for the Houston Texans in 2008. We won versus – uh, Jacksonville, I think I started a Thursday night game wearing all red. Uh, looked like a bunch of uh, uh, Kool-Aid men. At least the lineman used to say looked like <laughs> the Kool-Aid guy. Um, but yeah, you, you don't. There's not that national exposure, especially back then, you know, pr- sort of pre-red zone, pre-NFL Network, all those types of things. But huge market in Houston. Uh, Andre's a legend down there. Has a great nonprofit, but as a player, he a phenomenal teammate, phenomenal player phenomenal specimen as just a, just a athlete, just a sort of freak of nature athlete, but again, you know, mentally had all those attributes that you'd love to have as a teammate as a wide receiver.
0: Okay, last one on your list, five best football player teammates that you've ever been around is Eli Manning, and I just want to say that the Eli Manning Hall of Fame debate drives me crazy. Because the second half of his career, he didn't play for very many good teams. His skill set, obviously, as it happens to everybody, was fading during Eli Manning's prime. It's not just like he had two good games. He's not Nick Foles, okay? I mean, he was one of the elite quarterbacks during that time for probably a, a seven or eight year stretch, where if you had Eli Manning, you felt like every year you could go win the Super Bowl, potentially. And then... When people try to downplay beating Tom Brady in two Super Bowls and being the MVP in both of them, I just don't know how you downplay that. Like, that's what you start playing for. That's what you watch as a fan for is to go win the Super Bowl and to beat the best player of all time twice in the biggest game. I, I don't think there's any going like, yeah, well, if you didn't – It's like – well. He did. He did do it. There's no downplaying how amazing that is. So honestly, you know, I think he does get into the Hall of Fame. I just don't really care for the debate because I think he was, I think we look at, oh, what his overall win-loss record is or what his quarterback rating, but a lot of those stats are influenced so much by the last couple of years of his career. If he retires after beating Brady the second time, I don't think anybody even questions whether he'd be going into the Hall of Fame.
1: Well, Eli's career is interesting. You know, he, he comes into the New York Giants 2004. Kurt Warner's the starting quarterback for about two thirds of that season. Then they, you know, they're sort of, uh, they know that at some point they're going to give it to Eli. And he first starts playing. He's not all that good. Kurt and Kurt had played well and Eli had, had played great. Um, and he ends up in 2007 getting into the Super Bowl, getting super hot in the playoffs. But if we remember, if we go back, you know, Tom Coughlin was right on the edge of getting fired a couple times, uh, and they, they kept him on and yeah, won the Super Bowl. But you know, I, I think they were nine and seven, maybe ten and six when they made those runs. But he was the guy who would sort of like the John Starks, he was the guy that could get really hot. And Eli got hot at the right time twice. Uh, but he was in this offense, Kevin Gilbride's offense in New York for Eli's, I think, his first ten years in the league was an offense that you just didn't throw the ball to the running backs. They were the last almost every year in running back catches. It was not something they did very often. They loved keeping the running backs in, chipping, helping out uh, the offensive line so, so Eli could hold on to the football. Then he had usually two or three receivers going down the field running all these various option routes. Uh, and they sort of ran to green grass and ran to space. There had to be this thing where quarterbacks and receivers truly had to be on the same page all the time. And so it wasn't an offense that had unbelievable timing and get the ball out and those types of things. And so, you know, that type of offense is not conducive to 69% completion percentage. Just not. It's conducive to, 59 or 60% complete. You're just trying to throw the ball down the field all the time, and you're not just flicking the ball to the running back for a four-yard gain that's flat. You're trying to push uh, the field a lot. Um, but it was really, really hard to stop when it was on. And he had Steve Smith, Hakeem Nix, Mario Manham, and he had a you know, good set of receivers. Imani Toomer early on, who was, by the way, underrated player. Imani Toomer, very good wide receiver for New York Giants. But Eli had to do – On top of it, we're talking about those running back stand protections. He had to mentally, and this is where he was different than Favre, he did mentally run the entire operation. Favre was great as give him a play, and he'll find a way to make it work. Eli is like give him a play, and there's a very good chance he'll change that play or change the protection or change this or change that or, 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 or change the pass pattern, lead the protection on. He was constantly manipulating the defense to get to a better play. Um, and that t- that's a lot. That's a lot of responsibility for a quarterback. So, yeah, statistically, you know, I, he might have like an 86% uh, uh, you know, quarterback rating. I think mine's like 81 or 82. So you're like, oh, not even that big of a difference. But he was such uh, a good player. And he was clutch. And, now, and there's something about playing quarterback for the New York Giants, kind of like the Dallas Cowboys too, that just takes an extra weight. There's just an added element of pressure of responsibility, and I think we all can agree he passed that responsibility test with flying colors over all those years in the toughest media market in the country, lots of scrutiny, and just rarely, rarely, rarely said sort of the wrong thing that caused any sort of turmoil. And it's not easy to do. Uh, and you might think of as a bland person in his press conferences. He was anything but that. Really, Maybe the smartest quarterback I ever played with. I think he got like a 39 or 40 or something on his wonder lick. Uh, you know, those, those nice private schools in New Orleans that he uh, w- was lucky enough to go to. Uh, but, yeah, he was, he was that football team. He was the offense. Everything went through him. He was just the quarterback that was part of the offense. It really was uh, his offense. And uh, I would say for me, one of the top five guys i played.
0: So do you think he's going to get in the Hall of Fame?
1: Yes, I do think he'll get in the Hall of Fame. I also think Andre Johnson should get in the Hall of Fame. I also think Zach Thomas should get in the Hall of Fame. I really do. Uh, but, you know, will Eli get in first ballot? Probably not. Uh, but it will be interesting. I, I think a lot of uh, sports writers, there's, of course, the Manning thing. There's the New York thing. Um, it, it wasn't some small market. You know, Philip Rivers and him will always sort of be connected. A lot of people think Philip Rivers will get in the Hall of Fame as well, despite not having those playoff runs and those Super Bowl. Uh, run, Super Bowls that Eli does have. Yeah, I think he does get in the Hall of Fame, but I guess we'll have to wait and see.
0: Well, Sage, this was really fun. I'm, I'm glad that we decided to do this. You, uh, being a journeyman, had a remarkable journey through the NFL and rubbed elbows with a lot of great players. So I'm glad that we could take the time to break down five in a way that, I don't know, people rarely get to hear. Uh, literally behind the scenes with Eli Manning and Brett Favre. Uh, very cool stuff. So soon, hopefully, we'll start to get into real training camps and have position battles to break down and everything else with the Vikings. But I'm glad that we could take this time in June to talk about some NFL legends. Thanks for doing it, man.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, if we do get into training camps here and with all the COVID-19 stuff going on, you know, we, we may have to really become experts on who's on the practice squad, <laughs> yes. who's on the <laughs> bottom of the roster. It's going to be an interesting year because, oh, well, you know, next thing you know, Kirk Cousins is out for two weeks or three weeks or something. So it's going to be a very, very interesting fall in both the NFL and college football.
0: So you're saying we should spend a lot of time on Nate Stanley against Jake Browning
1: in training camp? It, you know, we, we might we might see Nate, Nate Stanley – uh versus uh uh whoever the packers backup quarterback is and you know for for a game this year. I mean it's going to be I, who knows what's going to happen.
0: It's got to still be Scott Tolzien. You can't tell me different. It's always Scott Tolzien. All right, Sage. Well, thanks and we'll get uh, together again very soon. Sounds good. Hey, before we wrap up here on the Purple Insider Podcast, just want to ask a quick favor to all of you loyal listeners. If you could go to the description of this podcast and go to the link to the survey that I posted there. It's, it takes you about 60 seconds, and you'll be automatically entered to win a chance to, to win some AirPods or Blue Wire merchandise Real quick, it would be a big help. Just fill out the 60-second survey and send it in. We'll be good to go. Plus, rate and review this podcast if you get a chance. Thanks very much for listening.